Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Sisters, let's open our Bibles. We come to the point uh, of our Bible reading as a as a church in the book of Judges, Judges chapter Judges chapter four is where we're up to. I greet you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I welcome you to Cornerstone Reform. Thank you, brother. Baptist Church. We trust that the Lord will, will be among us this afternoon and bless us. As he has already blessed us through the worship. And now through his reading of his word in a few moments, once we're done, we'll ask our brother Nelson to come and to preach the word that the Lord has placed upon his heart. We do all this for his glory and for his honor and the renown of his great name. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's open them up to Joshua. Joshua, my apologies, Judges. Judges chapter chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. We're reading from verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter together. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Javan, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth, Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Ibn, of Ibn Oam, the Kedesh from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will sure go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to the Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 of 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And 
Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all the army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth, Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was a peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera, and he said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, and the tent peg in his temple. So on the day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, beloved brothers and sisters, the cycle continues in, in this book, the book of Judges. The cycle continues over and over again. If you remember last week, I said the book is a book of cycles. And what we find in the first few verses, or first few words, I should say, in this chapter, is the same words that will be ringing in your ears by the time we're done from the book of Judges. And it is this. And the people of Israel, again, it says here, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. An 80-year period of peace have they enjoyed thus far. They've enjoyed a, a, a period of peace, but then they've sold their hearts out to idolatry. They, they've turned away from God. They've sold themselves into apostasy. They've forsook the God of Israel. And now what we see is these, these people are now under the oppression, cruel oppression of King Jabin of Hazor. Now, this should not be a surprise to these people. They've already been warned both by the great prophet Moses. Remember, on the other side of the Jordan River, which is for you, for you guys over here, for me over this side, but also through Joshua as well. And if you obey the Lord and, and, and keep his statutes, then the blessings of God will remain and be given to him. He'll be your God and you'll be his people. However, if you disobey, if you forsake the Lord, then you will bear the blessing or the curses of the Lord. The very God who was for you will now turn against you. And this is what they're, they're experiencing even now. Did they heed the warning? No, they did not heed the warning. And on two occasions previously also, they did not hear the warnings of the judges and the history that they have even in this book. 
nor did they fear the Lord. And so, what we find as we work our way through the book of Judges, is we find that they, that the God of the universe and the greatest privilege for his people is for them to know him and to be known by him. It's his presence, it's for him to be their God and they, his people, and he turns his back on these people. He sells them over to the king, Jabin, the king of Hazor, we're told. And slowly what we see is the spoils and the blessings that they once enjoyed as a, as a product of the conquest when God's mighty hand was with them is slowly unraveling and is slowly, they're slowly missing or, or losing the blessings that God had given them. Last week we spoke about Jericho. You remember Jericho, first city that the people of Israel conquered by the mighty hand of God. I and mean, that was then conquered by the people of Moab and they lost that city at that point. Then we spoke about Gilead or, or, or Gilgal, if you remember, a place that should have been remembered by the 12 stones from the Jordan River that, that Joshua erected, a place that commemorates the mighty hand of the, God, of the Lord, not only the Israelites, but all the people of the world. Now that place is commemorating something completely different. We're told the idols or the stone images, that which once pointed to Yahweh, the only true God, is pointing to fake gods, false deities. What a shame. And now here, Hazor. Hazor is taken over. This is a very significant city in, in the land of Israel. We're told that Hazor, in fact, is the head of all the kingdoms of Canaan. And it was conquered by the people of Israel when in the days of Joshua, when they went over and they conquered this massive city, they, they, they put the king to execution. They destroyed all the inhabitants of the city by the edge of the sword and they burned down the city. One in three cities, we're told in the book, in, in, in the conquest, that were burnt down to a crisp. And Hazor was one of them. The other two, if you're wondering, were, were Jericho and Ai. And now what we find before us is the city that they once conquered and claimed and that was theirs is now being reclaimed, taken back and reestablished by the, by Jabin, the, the king of Hazor. And from there he's established a stronghold. He's, he's built back the city and he's established a stronghold from, a stronghold, my apologies, from which he will now brutally oppress the people of Israel. Now, the main persecution, this is a city in the north, by the way. It's in the far north reaches of the, the land of, of Israel. So the people who were probably most affected by the persecution of Jabin, the king, were the northern tribes. So we have, and that's why I mentioned before us, is the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun, the tribes that really are closest to the region of, of Hazor. How could this be? How could it be that, that a city that was once owned by the, the people of Israel through the mighty hand of, of God, through the conquest, is now taken back by the nations, by the Gentiles? Well, let me give you one word. Passivity. Passivity. The people of Israel had become passive. See, they'd enjoyed the time of peace, which is good. But instead of using that time of peace to, to dedicate and, and to, to, to affix their affections and their love upon the God of Israel and his word and meditate upon his rules and his laws and his statutes and to train their kids in the like and to be prepared according to his word and the warnings that are in his word and to recognize that they're not out of the danger zone yet because there's still enemies on all sides. They became passive. 
enjoying the peace and then looking over and rather than seeing people or nations that would be a risk to them, threat to them, they began to like the things that they are doing and enjoy and even desire the, the life that they live, the kings that they have, the women that they have. When God had said clearly, do not do it. They gave themselves over to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. They became Passive and indifferent, oblivious to the danger. And this is the problem. When God's people are passive, don't think for a moment that the enemy is passive. He never stops. He never rests. There's always a war. There's always a war and he's always at work. You sit back or I sit back and he progresses. So now Jabin, the king of Canaan, establishes himself with his general Sisera, and he inflicts incredible cruelty upon the people of Israel. Probably, according to the words used here, probably the worst that we've seen yet since they've been rescued from the land of Egypt. And once again, these people cry out to the Lord, help us, deliver us. The Lord hears their cry, and then we're introduced to this very interesting character by the name of Deborah. Deborah is introduced to us as a judge. Deborah is introduced to us as a prophetess of Israel. But beloved brothers and sisters, as we read this text, it should strike us that there's something outside the norm taking place. Because Deborah has an authoritative role to judge the people and to be a prophet, one who is the mouthpiece of God. This is outside the norm. Now, we don't restrict God for who he is. God raised this woman, Deborah, for the very purpose for which we see before us. But this is unusual. Because it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of value or or worth. Not at all. It's a matter of role and function and responsibility, all ordained by the God of the universe, who is the one who mandates how his creatures, how his people are to live, whether that is his people or in the household in general. The Lord God has established that the man is to be the head and the woman is to be the helpmeet, as we saw in, in Adam. Adam was created to, to, by God to be the, the head, the vice regent under God, if you will. And, and Eve was created to be his helpmeet, to be his support. The Lord God loves them the same. The value in his eyes are exactly the same. He treasures them the same. How do we know this? Because male and female, he made them both in his own image. Yet we respect him and we honor him when we fulfill the role and the responsibility for which we were created. No doubt, Deborah was raised for this day. But when we read things like this in the Bible, and although she's the only time, she's the only prophetess, female prophet mentioned, there are other, my apologies, um, female judge mentioned, there are other occasions, maybe a handful in the Bible, where we come across also female, other female prophetesses. But we ought to sit back and ask the question, why? Why is this taking place? Now, I can assure you, Deborah is not starting a feminist movement. She's not doing that at all. She's a godly woman. 
raised by God for this hour, as I said before, and I thank the Lord for women like Deborah. Israel ought to thank the Lord for women like Deborah. And although God is free to do as he pleases, God has a normality that he has established in the structure of his creation for the family, for the church, and the way authority is to be handled among his people. And I think when we read passages like this, without taking anything away from Deborah, she honored the Lord in this position, but he ought to show us what's going on with the men in this moment. What's happening to the the men in Israel at this particular time? Why haven't they risen up to take leadership? Why don't we see men taking leadership, beloved? What's going on? Why why don't we see men pursuing and, and encouraging their families and their communities to press into Yahweh, into his law, into his covenant, to, to press them into covenant fidelity, to get them to fix their eyes. Come, lead by example, and let's our, fix our eyes upon the God of the universe, the God who has covenanted with us, the God who loves us and has given us a particular order. Don't go to the view to the left or the right. Don't look at the pagans and desire what they have. We have something better here. We have the only true God of the universe, and he is among us. He's made himself known to us. Come, let's follow this God. Where are the men? Isaiah chapter 3 tells us there is a context where, where women may lead the people of God. But in that context, it's a context of judgment. In this passage that is before us, we have two women, blessed women, Deborah and Jael, both taking charge, both doing the bidding of the Lord, because it seems like the men of Israel have become passive. In fact, Deborah's song, there's, if we had some time, there's many, um, many supports to what I just said, but let me just at least give you one. In Deborah's song, in the very next chapter, in chapter 5, we have a reference to 40,000, it seems, military-aged men, and it tells us they had no, no shield in their hand and no spear in their hand. Now, it's very likely it's referring to 40,000 uh, military-aged men. Israel, throughout Israel, you had many more than that. So maybe just talking about the, the, the men, maybe in Zebulun and, and, and in Naphtali, possibly. However, the point is still true. And remember how I said earlier that if there are enemies lurking, then, then we're at war. So, so whether those, the shields and the swords or the spears were stripped from them by another power, I don't know, or whether they relinquished them themselves, but these weren't men who were ready to fight. They're not men who are ready to protect their families, protect the people they love. They're not men ready to protect and fight the, the enemies because God said that if you walk in my ways, your enemies become my enemies and no one can overcome you. No one can overcome you. And beloved brothers and sisters, what we see here is a a physical example of a spiritual reality. You're either advancing in war when there's enemies, and we know we have enemies, spiritual enemies that we know of. You're either advancing and bringing them to death, pursuing and taking the fight to the enemy. Or, spiritually speaking, you're losing ground. Because passivity will end in destruction. Let me tell you. 
King Jabin found himself back. He made himself, he made his way back into Hazor. Right? Now I said in the time of Joshua, Hazor was completely burnt to a crisp and there was not a single person. Joshua chapter 11, if you want to read it later on, not a single person who remained alive. Burnt to a crisp. At one point, he has come back or not come back and he's a new king because although he carry he carries the same name it's not the same person it's probably Jabin is a title for the king in that region but anyway someone comes back into the land a pagan comes back into a land that they had claimed and tell me brothers and sisters how long does it take to rebuild a city and to make that city a stronghold from which a king is happy to dwell and then to inflict from this central location, his, his cruel oppression upon the people of Israel. Cities are not built in a day. What were they doing? What were the leaders of Israel doing in this time? When the Lord said to them, I've remained, I've allowed your enemies to remain so that you would know war. That means if they begin to threaten You stand up and you fight the enemy. Brothers and sisters, this is so important for us to see. Brothers, as heads of your family, corruption begins to come into your household. Are we remaining passive? What do we do when corruption begins to come into the household? In so many ways today. In so many ways. For Israel, it was to cross over the border. But for us, there's so many ways. We have mobile phones with an infinite amount of filth in them. The society, everything in this world, beloved, everything that is out there that wants to make its way into your home. Men, brothers and sisters, please see the importance of not being passive in this. This is a war. This is a war. You've heard the adage that that is rooted in Romans chapter 8. If you are not killing sin, sin is killing you. That's a biblical reality. Passivity in the land. Hazel got in, cleaned the place. Sorry, Hazel. Jabin got in, cleaned the land of all the rubble and the burnt, what do they call burnt things? Um, chaff, whatever you want to call it. And then he rebuilt the place, established formulated a massive army. This general, Sisera, which is, which is the, the, the fear and the dread of man is seen in his army. All the while, what were the leaders of Israel doing? Even Barak, when he's first introduced to us and summoned by Deborah, to gather the 10,000 men from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun and then to take those men down to uh, the, the, the southern side of the valley of Jezreel. There, there's plain to plain area. And there he said it's on the river of Kishon. When she summoned him to do that, did you, did you see, did you sense a, a level of passivity in his voice? A, a level of reluctancy to add, to act, my apologies. Verse 6b, when Deborah actually speaks to, to Barak, she says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? She's asking him a question. Has he not commanded you? Go gather the men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera and uh, the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. It sounds to me, at least the text suggests, 
But this instruction had already been given to this man. But he hadn't acted. And then, and then he says, I'll go, Deborah. But only if you come with me. But if you don't come with me, I won't go. Now, as we read this, I think, you know, I, I see a lack of courage and I, Barak sounds a little wimpy to me. But beloved, I get it. This is a very scary proposition. A very scary proposition. Sisera had a very super advanced army. The fact that 900 chariots are mentioned, this is a big deal. This is state of the art. This is like the best of our tanks today. You can imagine 900 iron chariots. These are heavy things where, where you had at least two men inside the chariot. One was, was controlling the chariot and the other, at least one other man who had weapons to engage in battle. Now in these chariots, you'd have two horses or even four horses in this era. We don't know exactly, but can you imagine the force and the power of these chariots? The ideal situation would be a plane. That's where God is sending them. By the river Kishon, where it's plain, flat level, they have the advantage on all ends. One of these chariots, one of these chariots at full speed could run down and steamroll maybe a hundred foot soldiers. And let me tell you, that's all the people of Israel were. Foot soldiers. I can get it. I understand the fear. I understand the intimidation. I'm not going to stand here and say I don't understand that. My knees would be rocking or knocking, better yet. But I have to ask this question. Could it be? Could it be that this type of fear and passivity and reluctancy that got them in the mess in the first place? We do have human emotion. Don't get me wrong. You know, there's many commentators who speak differently um, about what took place here. And in light of what the whole of Scripture speaks to this narrative, and in particular, we'll get to that in just in a few moments, uh, they, they would suggest that it is very possible that Barak actually had or, or did a righteous act here. By asking Deborah to come along, uh, he's basically saying, you're, you're the recognized judge, you're the recognized mouthpiece of God. By you coming along, the presence of God will come with me, and I don't want to go anywhere unless you're with me. Probably something similar to what Moses said when the Lord said, I'm not going with you anymore. And Moses said, we won't go anywhere. Let us just die here unless you come with us. But there's some huge difference between those two statements. You see, for for starters, the Lord has already made a promise. He's already said that you are to go down to the river Kishon and I will draw Sisera and his army and the chariots and all the forces down there and I will give him in your hand. Promise has been made, whether Deborah comes along or not. I, I don't know what Barak was thinking, but the promise has already been made. However, there is something that we need to make ourselves aware of. And that is that whether Deborah comes or not, nothing has changed. What do I mean by that? Well, when Deborah comes, she's not exactly going to take up arms. She's not going to add another one foot soldier to the army of of Barak. She ain't going to do that. 
So the fact of the matter is that you have Barak here who's thinking in his mind, there is an impossible army, a formidable army that I don't think anyone, humanly speaking, can defeat. 900 chariots against even 10 or 100,000. How can you? We don't even know how many soldiers he had or other soldiers he had. There's the impossible going here. And although he's still at the point now where he doesn't know in and of himself how this defeat will take place, and humanly speaking, it is impossible whether Deborah comes or not, the fact of the matter is this. He goes. He goes. At that point, beloved, he has faith. It may not be a a big faith. He may be reluctant and fearful. But at that point, he... He trusts. He trusts in the word of the Lord. Like he's not trusting in himself at that point because he knows that no one can take this army. For 20 years, Jabin, through his general Sisera, has had his thumb upon the people of Israel. Do you think they hadn't staged an attack or tried to free themselves from the oppression up until that point? For 20 years. So at that point, what does he have other than just to trust in the word of the Lord. Now Deborah tells him, I'm sorry, I don't know how, what time I, I started my clock when I first got on here, so I'm not too sure, but hopefully we'll get, we'll get this happening, uh, finishing very soon. I'll get, I'll get to the point. So Deborah, t- Deborah tells Barak that the downfall of Sisera won't be uh, something to his glory, but it would rather be a, uh, the glory of a woman, because the Lord will give the, the general into a woman's hand. And when you read that, the first thing you think is, Deborah, because she's going along with him. But actually, she, it's not Deborah at all. It's actually Jael who gets the glory. Uh, we, we, we know that because in the next chapter, in chapter 5, we're told Jael is the most blessed of all the women. But either way, we're told that Barak does what the Lord commanded, takes for himself 10,000 men from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebul. And in fact, in the next chapter in, in Deborah's song, we're told also other tribes come and help as well. But he goes down to the river Kishon, and they take it to the forces of Sisera. And although we don't have a great deal of detail in chapter 4, there's a victory for the people of Israel. There's not much there, right? It seems like there may be some panic, but there's not a great deal of detail in chapter 4. But I think in chapter 5, in verses 4 in particular, and I'm not going to take you there right now for the sake of time, and and in verse 4 of chapter 5, and in verse 20 and 21, there is there is an allusion to the fact that the heavens open and the law and the Lord causes rain. Not just rain, but we're told that the banks of the Kishon overflow and the and and some of the chariots are swept away. Seems to me like what was the advantage of the opposing side? I mean it's hard to put all the details together, but this is this is what I think has taken place is the advantage they had in the steamrolling iron chariots with these horses and the power when the Lord makes it rain and the banks of the river come up and the plain area that was of their advantage, now they're getting bogged. They can't go very far when they're getting bogged. And you may have all this confusion where you have these chariots and you have all these horses and thousands of people and they're all over one another and they're frantically thinking, we were going to defeat these men. But now what do we do? Many were swept away and bogged and many continued. And the people of Israel, now that they're in a panic, continue to pursue them to the, to the, um, this side is the west, 
to the west towards the, the Mediterranean Sea and they defeat them and not a man stays standing except for Sisera, the general. He jumps off his chariot and then he progresses to go northwest towards the house of Heba, the Kenite. And then we're told that wonderful story and what happens there. He trusts them because there's some sort of peace between them and the family and he, he's invited in, want water, he have some milk. And then this brave JL puts a peg into his head and he meets his death. Now, just in case we thought somehow that this was a product of man and not God, the last paragraph of chapter 4 tells us that so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. This was the decree of God. We may not understand all the details, but this was the decree of God. And let me end with this. There's one character in this story that makes his or her way into that famous chapter in the book of Hebrews that is labelled, rightly so, the Hall of Faith. Who can tell me what chapter that is? Chapter 11. Can anyone tell me who makes its way in this story into that chapter? Barak. It wouldn't have been... Wouldn't it be my first choice, to be honest, when you have a chapter exemplifying faith? If Judges 4 is all we can go by, I wouldn't have picked Barak. But he's there. And he's listed alongside other judges like Gibeon and Jephthah and Samson. We haven't gone very far into the book of Judges, but you can take my word for it. Once we examine and unpack the lives of these men, faith may not be the first attribute you think of when their names come up. However, they're there. And it's at this point where the words of our Lord really storm my mind. When he says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Matthew seventeen, twenty. You see, I, I, I don't think chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is meant for us to look at these men and women and to exalt them in any way saying... It is because of their inherent qualities that the Lord did what he did in and through them. Because those list of judges that I gave you, you won't say that about them. But it is faith. Even a little faith. Even faith like a mustard seed. You see, it's not in the man or the woman, but it is in the object of faith. Faith on its own, beloved brothers and sisters, if we just use that word, it's absolutely meaningless unless we define the object of the faith. The faith is the instrument for which we see the object of our faith, the triune God in, in Christ Jesus. I'm so, I'm so glad that the book of 
Hebrews mentions men like this and not because I can look at them and think I stack up because I don't but he takes my eyes off self he removes my eyes off the things I think I'm good at my aptitudes, my skills the things that others commentate or comment, commend me on No, it, that's nothing Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's everything. By His power. It's not by power or strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Apart from the God of the universe, we are nothing. These men are nothing. It's all about the object of our faith. And if it's a small faith, it's still a real faith. You're still looking to the God of Israel. Still looking to Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's interesting how that's the names are in verse 32, but then in verse 34 we're told they were made strong out of weakness. I love that. So that means the default position is weakness. Made strong through faith in the only true God. He had a little faith, Barak, I believe, but it was the right faith. He trusted in the word of God And that's an encouragement to my soul. Let me end with this. Actually, let me just end with the words of the author of the book of Hebrews, how he brings uh, the chapter 11 to a close. It's actually the first two verses of chapter 12, but it really belongs to chapter 11. How do I say this? Well, the first word is a therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Is where faith comes in. Looking to Jesus. Remember how I said faith is the instrument that we that we see that we're able to apprehend, apprehend our looking to Jesus, the founder, that is the author and the finisher, that is the 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 the, the, the completer and everything in between of what? Of our faith who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved brothers and sisters, let me just summarize like this. Look to Christ. Let's pray.